Hello and welcome to the Compassionate Leadership Interview. I'm Chris Whitehead and my guest today is Daniel Sattar, Chief Executive of Big Issue Invest. You can find him on Twitter, at I am that Dan. Daniel, welcome. Thank you. Tell me about Big Issue Invest and your role there. Yeah, so I'm, uh, I'm Daniel Sattar and I'm the Chief Executive of Big Issue Invest. I've been here about seven months now. Um, Big Issue Invest was set up out of The Big Issue, the magazine for uh, homeless people. And it's, uh, it's a magazine where the vendors buy it from us. Um, they buy it for £1.25, um, they sell it for £2.50, and it's a way of them earning their way out of poverty, in truth earning their way out of destitution, um, which is where many of the, the people we work with um, are. And the, the observation that John Bird, who was the, the founder of The Big Issue, had when he set it up was that uh, he needed uh, financial support when he set it up. He happened to know Gordon Roddick. Gordon Roddick is the husband of Anita Roddick, and they set up the body shop. And without that early support, we might have struggled to get off the ground. Um, the Big Issue magazine, the group, it's self-sustaining, it generates a surplus, it's a trading, viable social enterprise. But in that early stage, it needed, um, it needed kind of financial support. So he thought, not everybody knows a rich bloke um, or a rich woman in the case of Anita Roddick. So he set up um, with, uh, with Nigel Kershaw, who was the, also involved in the early stages of, of the magazine, this idea of, um, they call it kind of social broking or social brokers network, connecting social enterprises with um, people and organizations that had money. And that morphed into what we have now, Big Issue Invest, where we essentially raise money from individuals, from charities, foundations, businesses, and we invest it in charities and social enterprises. So every year we're making somewhere between 60 and 80 investments um, in charities and social enterprises, providing a whole range of services that are tackling poverty in the UK. Mm. Now, cynics would say that there's no such thing as responsible finance and, and that you can't book the market risk-reward equation. Mm. Do you really handle investments that the mainstream banking sector wouldn't consider, or is responsible finance a label? Yeah, I mean, it's uh, when when the responsible finance label got coined, I thought the, the beauty of it is it's like one of these pointy little words, because the implication is everything else is irresponsible finance. So it was quite a, quite a, quite a little uh, kind of pointy instrument. Um, we are finding, I mean, the banking system, it's extraordinary. I mean, when you look at the history of, uh, of banking uh, in the United Kingdom, you'll see hundreds and hundreds of years of basically technological innovation from the idea of, uh, of, of early banknotes, uh, then banknotes that could be more freely used and not linked back to the individual uh, through to the evolution of checks and clearing and all kinds of things that we've, that we've had um, a way in there. So we have an amazing um, financial uh, services industry. But what we, uh, what we found in the social investment sector um, as it's evolved and in modern time over the last 20 or 30 years has been that there, is con there are consistently a group of charities and social enterprises who the mainstream don't serve very well. And the reason is that they 
they don't look great from a mainstream finance perspective. There is uh, there are very solid income streams in uh, for charities and social enterprises, but those are often through government contracts, um, through grants, and they're not necessarily things that fit easily into ordinary um, credit appraisal. That said, the mainstream banks are the major funders of the charity and social enterprise sector. You'll find billions of pounds of lending. NCVO in their annual surveys find that. But for smaller to medium-sized charities, you just find that gap where the mainstream banks say, we have a responsibility to our shareholders, we have a responsibility to our depositors, this just looks a little bit too risky. And yet we find um, that's where we can make loans. The kinds of things we're doing, everything from £8,000 loan to somebody to uh, buy a woodworking machine um, where he's training homeless people in woodworking, uh, which uh, is much cheaper than the leasing contract that it's on. An £80,000 loan to a small charity in Hull to buy a property uh, that they need to run their offices out of. Um, relatively small loans, under £150,000 loans are our kind of bread and butter. And that's somewhere where it's difficult to make money out of those. It's as expensive to do a £150,000 loan as it would be a half a million pound loan. So if you're a rational finance institution, you make the larger loans, you avoid the smaller loans. So, um, but that's our mission, um, to serve the sector, so that's why we go there. Our loss rates are relatively low, so we're finding, you know, a percentage, 2%, perhaps bad debts each year, not bad, you know, not bad at all. So we're able to do it. But we do it, we're not generating the kind of profit margins the mainstream would look for. So there is a market there. Mm. We can serve it. We can serve it well. We do serve it well. Um, but there are sensible reasons why the mainstream doesn't quite come there. Yeah, yeah. And I guess you, you probably don't have the same overheads as a mainstream bank either. You know, so... Well, there, there, there is the issue of scale. So we are small scale. So our, our lending portfolio, we might be doing six to seven million pounds a year on the small loan side. Um, we would have anything between, you know, 15, 15 million or so perhaps in our, in our loan portfolio at any one time. Um, then we have a fund management side where we run three funds. Um, our first social enterprise fund, which uh, closed in uh, 2010, and that's repaying to investors, just £10 million in size. Our second social enterprise growth fund, £23 million. Um, our third fund we're running now, an outcomes fund, £10 million. We're looking, we're, we're fundraising for that. But those are all small scale. Mm. Um, by the standards of the mainstream. So we are cost-effective. You know, we sit here in this office in, uh, in Finsbury Park, very reasonable rent because we're surrounded by a building site on three sides. Uh, so we keep our costs down, but I think we're still, uh, we're still slightly sub-scale compared to the mainstream. Yeah. And do you have ambitions to scale up? Yeah, it feels like we're growing into our own skin at the moment. Um, the next 18 months or so, uh, we're filling out our lending capacity, uh, fully deploying our existing funds, and that will give us uh, that will give us some fairly natural growth. Um, but we're we're at a point where we're looking eighteen months ahead. What kind of products that we well we're thinking about them right now for eighteen months ahead? What kind of products are we going to be bringing to the market? Um, what do we need to develop? What do we need to fundraise for? What is that array going to look like? Because we have 
straightforward debt products to charities and social enterprises on the smaller loan side, on our kind of social enterprise growth funds, um, loans up to three million pounds or so, the same on our, we have a property facility in the middle of those two. So it's really what, what does the next step look like? Is it uh, flexible finance to replicate overdrafts for some of our smaller charities? I think our um, the charities and social enterprises we lend to would like evergreen finance. They'd be saying, we need the money, we're going to keep needing the money. Why do you just need to bring it back in order to exit to your investors in eight or ten years' time? So we need to, we need to develop products, we need to constantly develop products that reflect the needs of the market. Yeah. And do you think you're making a difference in the UK social enterprise sector or are you just scratching the surface as yet? I think both. We are making a difference and we are scratching the surface. So um, social need in this country, uh, poverty has increased. Uh, my previous employer, Joseph Rantry Foundation, um, look, at, look at poverty in a variety of ways. Um, you could see you know, 17 million or so people who are in poverty and under one kind of definition. Absolute you know, destitution, more than a million people. Um, destitution is where you, during a month, you can't, um, there, are, there are days in that month where you can't feed yourself, where you can't wash yourself, um, where you're homeless for a number of days a month, and that destitution to have more than a million people experiencing that at some point during the year uh, is, uh, is really quite something. Um, so there's a need, and we're scratching the surface of that need in, mm. what, we're, in what we're doing. We can't escape from 10 years of austerity that shrunk people's budgets. Um, finance is a facilitator, it's a bridge, but it's not a replacement for that, uh, for, for income that's been cut back on. Um, so there is a need. We scratch the surface, but the things that we're looking for are those game changers. When somebody comes along and says, I've got a transformative model here, uh, that starts to shift the dial. So we've invested in a, a care organisation in Scotland who are replicating a Dutch approach to community care. Essentially, this is bad news for managers, uh, it decapitates the managers, not literally. Uh, it gets rid of the management layer, forms self-organising teams, uses IT for rostering and lowers cost. It then transfers those cost savings into frontline wages. So it's aiming to increase the wages paid to the frontline care workers, which lets them hire more experienced, better trained, better qualified care workers and improve the, the quality of care. So that kind of game changer mm. lets you say respond both to the demographic change of an aging population and budget cuts by something that just changes the economics of delivering care uh, and changes the model. So those are the things that's like that's like the kind of the cake. I think you have to yeah. do a lot of bread and butter to get to cake. Uh, and I love doing bread and butter finance. It's just basic good lending, uh, just like any small to medium-sized enterprise needs. We can do that for the charity and social enterprise sector, and that's what we do. So you've, you've touched on your previous employer, Joseph Roundtree, and I think you also worked for the Esme Fairburn Foundation as mm, well at one yeah. time. Uh, was the private sector never an option for you? When I, I actually started out working for a little think tank, uh, the New Economics Foundation, uh, and the idea there was to, I had five, five years there, 
it uh, it was and it was set up by a group of economists who are basically saying that there ought to be a better way of, of organizing our economic system and I think that really came about from um, in my in my early years um, I, uh, I spent some of my time abroad and I did some growing up in Bangladesh and in the mid-1970s there was the first wave of Rohingya refugees coming across from at that time Burma into Bangladesh and at that time Bangladesh was a very poor country uh, and uh, ill-equipped to deal with just 40,000 refugees who came across the border so I saw that as a child and we were visiting the refugee camps we were supposed to be on holiday uh, my father was uh, working there and couldn't kind of stop working uh, so pretty it was pretty grim um, that uh, that camp so some years later I went back to Bangladesh in my 20s doing some research on farm community forestry and the forest officer showed me uh, telephoto um, pictures taken across the border showing clear felling of the um, forest on the other side of the border so it was the first kind of insight for me into going this wasn't just a religious conflict or an ethnic conflict but there was an economic driver that valuable timber was being clear felled and at that time um, in the uh, in the late 80s it was it was us in the West as much as the new emerging economies that were driving that demand so the idea of the economic system the economic system as driving some of the uh, poor events that uh, that I've been seeing um, I think started with that and I think from the new economics foundation going on to help um, back uh, I was fortunate to work for people helping set up Aston reinvestment trust a loan fund uh, for inner city Birmingham the early days the UK um, sustainable investment forum um, that was really the the theme of going let's try and move money to a better use uh, money can be used uh, in a way that causes inadvertent uh, negative impacts mm. so why can't we use it for a positive impact why do we only have to invest in the bad things let's invest in the good things sounds good um, you also touched on the uh, 2008 financial crash which of course mm. did the banking set the image of the banking sector no favors have you experienced a knock-on effect at big issue invest in the sense that you know how do your borrowers perceive you do you think they perceive you as part of big finance or it's a very it's a, it's it's a very good question and it is I think that's the real advantage of our roots so we were set up as a social enterprise by a social enterprise so we're deeply rooted in the sector that we're serving so when we go and see people you can get in the door as big issue and we are big issue invest uh, so they, they kind of know that we are one of them and that we know the problems they're, they're experiencing. So I think that really helps. I think the second thing is that the, uh, my people who've worked here before me um, hired well. And we hired all kinds of people who resonate well with the charities and social enterprises that we're there to, to serve. So I think that gets us um, across the door. Uh, but I think there's also a, a general... Um, an understandable lack of understanding about finance in the people who who need it because it's like you know how many times do we buy a house if we're lucky enough to own a house maybe once or twice or a few times during our lifetimes we don't become experts on the mortgage industry we may buy a car we may lease a car I don't know how many people really understand how 
you know, personal leasing contracts work. Uh, but there's something where we use finance, we don't really understand it as, as experts. So when a charity wishes to buy a warehouse for uh, sorting through clothes that's collected uh, through a charity collection round and needs to take a mortgage, they may well have never borrowed before. They may not have financial expertise before. So it's something that um, people approach with some wariness. So I think having, having a trusted brand and a trusted image mm. and people who can be trusted really, really helps. Yeah, I get that. Um, this is your first CEO job. Yeah. Um, what, what do you feel you've learned so far in your role? It's been really uh, fascinating. Um, before taking up the role, I went around and asked my former chief execs uh, what, uh, and, and other people in the sector what, uh, what their advice was. Um, on um, on how to do this, uh, I think one of the best pieces of advice I got was from a guy called David Gold, who runs Prospectus, and uh, he's a very nice guy. But he puts his professional head on, and he was right on to me. And he said, "No, I'm not going to tell you. Um, I'm not going to answer that question. You tell me. You tell me what you admired in your chief executives." Uh, what you thought they did really well. Uh, and he spent about, we, we walked around a park and he spent about 40 minutes driving me through the things that I admired in other chief execs. And he said, okay, Daniel, there's your answer. So really, <laughs> you know. very coachy way of doing it. It, it is, he's, he's, very, he's very good. And uh, so, so the kinds of things that I, that I liked um, and I accept that this is just what I like, so not every person who is going to be working uh, for me would necessarily like these things. But I like trust. I liked it when my chief executive trusted me, and that really drove my performance because I felt I had to hold their trust. Uh, so that that really helped. I admired the um, the clarity of direction that some chief executives had. So Campbell Robb, uh, who was at uh, Joseph Rowntree Foundation. Um, I overlapped, I, I was lucky enough to work for Julia Unwin briefly as chief, of chief exec, and then Campbell um, uh, replaced her. Campbell's now at, uh, at NACRO. But uh, Campbell had just, his direction was really clear. Uh, I used to tell him, jokingly, um, uh, he used to run the whole organization on two words. And he said, no, 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 Daniel, two words and a question. So his two words uh, were focus, prioritize, and his question was, why are we doing this? And that's how he ran the whole organization. He did a lot more than that. <laughs> but that was, uh, and in, in, a, in a very wide-ranging organization like Joseph Rowntree Foundation that did everything from running a housing association, a housing trust, care homes, retirement villages, through to... Uh, you know, exceptional, deep quality research into the causes of poverty. Mm. Uh, those two words, uh, focus, prioritize, and the question, why are we doing this? You know, you can see why he picked those. He yeah. would probably pick a different set uh, where he is where he is now. You can imagine that the options for prioritization were bewildering, really. Yeah, yeah. And then, uh, and, and others, um, I think Dawn Ostwick, who I worked with at Esme Fairburn, um, who's now at the National Lottery uh, Community Fund? Um, she, she, you know, she would talk about 
the long shadow of leadership, as she as she called it, that running running a very large organization with very remote um, offices and across a whole country, it's almost she people who had never met her needed to be able to say what Dawn wanted uh, and what the direction of the organization was. So uh, achieving that is quite yeah quite something. So I think just. I, I really appreciated uh, going round and talking to um, uh, to all of those former uh, former chief executives. I I think I, I find uh, all the things that they were doing that I, I can I can look at and see. Yeah, I really see why you kept doing that. Um, keeping repeating. Uh, the simple messages about what we're here for, what we're doing, what our strategy is, keeping repeating the messages about what our priorities are uh, for this year, and then how we're going to tackle things that we're not doing right now so people know they are being thought about. Uh, so I think that that kind of simple, constant repetition um, is the main thing. I struggle with uh, with many parts of it. I think I am I am learning how to how to delegate effectively, getting the right balance of diving deep without micromanaging. Um, lots and lots of stuff to uh, uh, to learn. And how would you describe the culture at Big Issue Invest? I, um, is it like Wolf of Wall Street, or <laughs> does it have a slightly different tone? Well, strangely, it may be more like that than you might think. That uh, it's a uh, we are you know we're really lucky in our founders. Um, John Bird uh, was the the founding editor, the founder and founding editor of the Big Issue, and then Nigel Kershaw who came along, who really founded um, Big Issue Invest. He had just extraordinary this this vision of a social merchant bank. We are not a bank. Um, but he he wanted something where whatever your financing need as a charity or social enterprise, you should be able to walk in this door and we should be able to have a product that serves that need. And if we can't, we should be evolving it and developing it. He's a fabulous um, creative uh, entrepreneur. So from from that though, what it meant is the these are huge personalities. Um, extraordinary. Uh, I went to see John Bird in the House of Lords. He's now Lord Bird, um, fighting poverty in the House of Lords, which I think he really enjoys. And he quoted Oscar Wilde at me, but he did this in the uh, House of Lords dining room, where he then lay down on the floor and he said, Daniel, this is how I see poverty, uh, in the gutter, looking at the stars. And the staff came up to him and said, Lord Bird, please, you know you can't do this. Uh, so they, they love him deeply there, and, uh, as, we, as we all do. Uh, but these are, you know, these are incredible, incredible founder people. So they, as they have found their management role in the group, because they're there at a, at a we're, you know, we are a group structure. So Big Issue Invest sits there alongside publishing, alongside a foundation that raises money to support um, the needs of our vendors. Um, they've moved up a governance level. So this space has been left now for a team of people to be taking forward the next generation of ideas. Uh, but almost institutionally, we're used to dealing with those incredible entrepreneurial founders where they have the insight and what they think needs doing is what the organization mm. does. Now we are, 
the challenge is to help the whole team um, realize, you know what, we do have space to do this. Uh, it is our job to do it. It's our job to generate the next wave of ideas. Uh, so it's a, it's a very interesting transition um, time uh, for, for everyone here. And that's, that's really our, our challenge at the moment. People are having to get, well, not having to get used to, but they're getting used to the idea of having their own headroom, which may not have been quite as pronounced in the past. Is that yeah, so, like that? so what we have to do is, is that there is, there is something where everyone has their day job and we're, we're busy with that, um, getting loans out the door, meeting the needs of the people who we are here to serve. Um, so we're, we're looking at a, a number of things, uh, a product development process, effectively looking, we've, we've run a, we've had somebody in to work with us, um, Candice Hampson, and she's been scoping out how other organizations do innovation. And we've been building that kind of innovation process for us. So there's a place where people's ideas can come to. Because without that, I think people will say, well, I put forward an idea, nothing happened. Mm. But we've got a place to look at it, a place to, and a process of considering it properly and taking things forward and then testing them so we don't bring things to the markets that uh, really don't serve a need or don't have investors willing to invest in them. So there's something where we have to both uh, free up ourselves um, as a staff team but also have the right processes in place that mean that uh, we can... You know, we can we can deliver on people's ideas. Yeah. So it's it's a it's a, there's a bit of a change there. I think also that we have a uh, we have a we have a culture where the founders were kind of used to yelling across the print room floor, um, and that's uh, yeah. We, so th there's a lot of there's a lot of change um, in uh, what we need to do to. Uh, to deliver well. Good thing is our founders really support it. Um, John Bird and Nigel Kershaw and the other group board members are absolutely you know, behind that process. Uh, I think they, they realize their great success will be us taking forward what they've, what they've founded, um, which, yeah. is, which is very encouraging. How would you summarize your leadership philosophy? Mm. I... Um, I practice Tai Chi um, in my non-work life. I think we were wryly looking at ourselves in our Tai Chi school and we, we decided we were a school of very untalented uh, Tai Chi people um, because we all did Tai Chi not because we were good at it but because we really needed to do it. Uh, so I was doing it physically because I was, uh, I'm, I've always been quite stiff in my, in my joints and in my muscles and uh, ligaments. So having something that worked away at that really gently was, was what I needed. Uh, so, uh, but I like the psychology of it. I like the, uh, the approach of being able to deal with violence without becoming violent yourself. So I think I try and bring that Tai Chi approach to, uh, to, uh, to my management style and leadership style. And um, Tai Chi is a... The, the mythical origins of it were of a, of a monk observing the movements of a bird and a snake. And the bird and the snake were circling around each other. And every time the bird would strike at the snake with its beak, the snake would spiral out of the way. And every time the, the, the snake would strike at the bird, the bird would move out of the way. So the monk's observation was rather than dealing with force 
directly with a hard force, uh, you got out of the way and then you were not impacted by the incoming force. So that means that you also don't fall over is a pretty crucial part of it. So mm -hmm. you, you deflect, bring in, absorb and give back what's coming your way. So I, um, I try and bring, I think I, I subconsciously bring that into my, into my work. Because um, the key bit is you're listening, you're listening to the other person, you're listening to where their balance is and how they are. And uh, there is a martial arts application of it, push hands uh, and the sword, but in push hands you're um, uh, potentially throwing the other person across the room, which of course you're not really doing. You're mm. just listening to their balance and you're helping them to understand where they're un unbalanced and you're gently helping the other person to see that and you might happen to end up flying across the room. Uh, and that would be the very uh, childish approach to push hands, which we greatly enjoy, of course. Yeah. Uh, but it is really about that um, understanding your balance and becoming more balanced. And I think that's something well worth bringing into a work environment. Um, who is the person that, or the experience, which has changed you or inspired you most? I would say the experience that inspired me the most um, echoes back. Um, you know, my mother was from England, my father was from Bangladesh. Um, it was one of those ones where my mother said, uh, when she saw my father for the first time, she thought, that's the man I'm gonna marry. And this idea of a kind of rather short, chubby, dark Bangladeshi guy was not in any way the man of her dreams, uh, but it was just like that. Uh, and uh, they went to, at the time, Bangladesh was part of Pakistan, and uh, there was a, uh, during the elections, the party that won the majority was one calling for independence in Bangladesh. And that was something resisted by the outgoing government and the military, and it resulted in a, in a civil war um, that eventually led to the formation of Bangladesh. So my father was a political prisoner, um, and we had to flee the country, my mother, brothers, and I, um, back to the UK. So I never really called myself a refugee because all we did is come home. We came home to my mother's parents. Mm. Uh, so we were very fortunate. Um, but we rejoined my father in Bangladesh after um, the civil war was over. And, uh, and I think that moment of seeing in that refugee camp in uh, later with the Rohingya refugees, seeing when you see babies who are triaged, who are, who are starving to death, it's, you know, the, even, even today, you know, it's, a, it's an extraordinary impact, which I, I still feel. So I would say that route from being 10 years old and seeing that experience has driven me because even at that time I would say I accept this is the way the world is but it doesn't mean that it's acceptable so I think from that moment I didn't accept it so I think that echo through to 10 years later um, seeing the refugee crisis again in Bangladesh and realizing that economic driver there's an absolute root in that and then I think the and the, the other moment, I suppose, in this long echo was probably 25 years later when um, I realized I, was, I couldn't figure out why I wasn't happy. And I think it was seeing 
the next wave of the refugee crisis, um, whereas this time it was 800,000 people, 20 times more than what I'd seen as a child. So I very much thought at that time, have I failed? You know, I, I was, ins- you know, it, it's not a great thing to be inspired by a, by a negativity. It's great to be inspired by a positivity. But I thought, have I failed um, all this effort that I and others have put in? So it was a, it was a real moment of, um, of reflection. Now, it doesn't fall on me to solve the human rights crisis in Myanmar and Burma. Um, or the things that are done there. That's not the path that I chose. I chose to address it through the economic drivers in in the United Kingdom. And overall, we have seen a tremendous improvement in human conditions. Economic growth has got big downsides, the climate crisis and many other things in there, but it's got tremendous upsides in wealth creation that we've seen. So... I think it's I, I think it's those kind of events that uh, that I suppose have driven have driven me and that I that I reflect on um, still to this day. I think in terms of inspiration, it's very there are extraordinary figures. I would say to my shame, it took me until I was fifty before I read the works of uh, Martin Luther King and his letters from Birmingham Jail, and it was like it was like the McPherson report. Um, just many, many decades earlier, because what he was really describing was institutional racism. And he was describing his experience of why he resisted uh, and broke the law. And his fellow pastors in the Southern Baptist Church, I think it was, were trying to say to him, but you're a priest, you're a pastor, you mustn't, you can't break the law. It's just, uh, just not right. But what he was saying back to them in his letters was that um, he knew that each one of them also believed that what he was doing was, was right. He was fundamentally doing something Christian and appropriate and right. Yet, as an institution, they felt that he shouldn't be doing it. So his observation was that institutions can make us behave worse than we are as individuals. And it's something that uh, Lord McPherson in the McPherson Report found about, uh, about the police when he was reviewing that. Fabulous people in the police, but if the system is wrong, then it gets you behaving in, in the wrong kind of way. So I think those, of course, those great figures um, and great writers uh, and, uh, you know, Nelson, Nelson Mandela, who was actually, he was quoting um, a woman writer on this, actually, about how, you know, our greatest fear is not that we're weak, but it's that we're, we're amazing. And we have this amazing capacity within us to do good and achieve extraordinary things. And it's, that almost makes us afraid that uh, if that is the case, then we all ought to be more extraordinary um, than we are. So I think it's those kinds of things that really challenge um, and inspire me um, to this day. And it's, um, I, think, I think it's also you have to know, you have to know yourself. Um, a lot of, um, you know, you find it in your Tai Chi, it's your balance. You have to find your roots, you have to find your connection. So for me, actually, it was important to reflect back on things that I still feel, you know, you have heard it in, in my voice. I still feel uh, deeply emotional about these things. So you ought to notice it and understand mm. it and go, okay, I see. I see that's where my drivers are. I see that's what's motivating me. Because otherwise, the thing is, other people will see that in you. And if you don't, then they have an advantage. 
So even if you're the wolf of Wall Street, I think self-awareness really, really helps you because otherwise the other person will have an advantage on you. That's good advice, I think. Um, so we've touched on Tai Chi. I'm a big yoga aficionado myself. Um, are there other aspects uh, to your self-care regime? Mm. I cycle, um, not every day, uh, but I think this week I'll have cycled to work three times a week. It's a fair old all, actually. I live in southeast London. We're up here in north London. Um, so it's about uh, 12 miles each way. So, you know, I might put in 75 miles on a good week. And it's a very different kind of exercise to Tai Chi. Tai Chi is will work your legs if you kind of sink a little in height. But, uh, but cycling is, that, uh, is the more aerobic side. But I think it's also like a reflection of childhood. I think when I got back on my bike, uh, probably two decades ago, uh, I, it suddenly recalled that freedom of childhood, of being able to get out and just go with, uh, with freedom. So I, that really helps me. And it's a de-stressor. Uh, it's also something that's really easy to put in as a bit of exercise because you don't have to make time for it. You're doing it in your work commute. Uh, but it gets the stress out of my system. I often find that if there's something troubling me, after about 20 minutes since the cycle ride, I'll go, ah, oh, you know what, that's, I, that shouldn't be bothering me in the way it is. Uh, so it, it's kind of, the, the mind-body connection is very clearly there. So if you find yourself stressed out, typically tension in your shoulders, that would be a classic uh, because you're tense in your mind. So maybe if we relax our bodies a little bit, maybe our minds will relax a little bit as well. So the cycling really, really helps me. Uh, I have a, um, uh, my father um, suffered from uh, high blood pressure. Um, he came to health in his later life, uh, but he was of a generation where I think it just, you just ate what you what you ate, and you um, you lived how you lived, and you didn't necessarily pay a huge amount of attention. Of course, people were some people were paying attention. So um, so I have a slight predisposition to high blood pressure. So my blood pressure is absolutely fine, but I know I have to keep up my uh, a, a kind of a, a good exercise routine and a reasonable diet um, because if I don't, I know what's going to be waiting for me. Um, so, uh, so well worth well worth doing. Are there um, things you'd like you'd still like to achieve at work or in your home life? Yeah, I think uh, I think ambition is a uh, something that I'm that I'm I'm still working working my way through. I think I came to leadership, or I came to being a chief exec you know, later on in my, in my life. Um, but I found what I was doing was leading. Um, I found that there were, I would be working with colleagues in an organization or across a number of organizations. And from time to time, something wouldn't happen. And uh, so I ended up asking why. And they said, oh, well, we thought you thought that it wasn't a good idea. So we didn't do it. And I, and I realized that I was expected to lead and people were expecting me to lead. And once I, I kind of recognized that, I started doing it um, more and more or more consciously. So, and that I think is what took me to applying for this job and, and taking on a, a CEO function. 
because I think ambition and uh, leadership in a you know in a in a dominant sense is absolutely not my style. Of course, there is a, a a bit of that. So I think I'm ambitious for what we can do at Big Issue Invest, and I'm ambitious for what we can do with social investment. Climate change didn't happen by accident. We have very carefully and meticulously business planned it and financed it. The objective was not climate change, but a lot of things had to happen for us to carefully invest and meticulously deliver things that have a byproduct of emitting large amounts of carbon dioxide into the atmosphere, which is driving um, climate change and global warming. So we have we we must do something different so we must move the way we invest uh, because otherwise uh, we will continue as we are uh, which we mustn't and there is a whole range of alternatives we can invest in and should be investing in so what we're doing at big issue invest and many others across social investment impact investment uh, responsible investment are doing are moving money to that more positive direction we have to do it well because we have uh, pensions, if we're fortunate. Um, there's a whole investment industry which is actually rooted in ordinary people's wealth um, gathered together. And those ordinary people do want to retire, you and I, with some, uh, with some pension in our, in our bank. So finding investments that reach that sustainable development goal of sustainable economic development, that's the big prize. I think that's what we're working towards. Sometimes I think we're just at the dawn of history. Um, it's as if it's as if maybe we've never started that if in you know if there's that moment where climate change has been solved poverty is a thing of the past where every child has the potential you know to be uh, you know to be a Picasso um, Maybe that's the start of, of human history, and if we're lucky, everybody will have forgotten us, um, because that will be that will be just amazing. So maybe we're just doing bits of plumbing and sorting out to try and get back in balance with our with our planet and with our environment, and that's that's the job that we've got as our generation, putting that balance right. That's a lovely optimistic thought. Mm -hmm. um, what advice would you pass on to aspiring leaders if you could go back 20 years in your career? What advice would you give yourself, maybe? Hmm. I think I'm very happy with where I've landed. So my advice might be, well, just carry on doing what you're doing. But I, but I remember at that time, actually, the most annoying thing I think people used to say was some... Um, you know, your health is your is your greatest uh, uh, you know is, is is your greatest kind of asset. Of course, they're right, but it's like when you're in your twenties and your thirties, you're kind of thinking, actually, I'd like a job, um, I'd like a decent salary, I'd like a roof over my head. Um, you know, I wouldn't mind a holiday every now and again, and uh, and that kind of advice seems to wash off one's um, one's shoulders. Uh, but I but I think it's also. At, at that time, I think I, I didn't have that self-confidence that I, that I have to some extent now. Uh, and I think that self-confidence only comes with, well, comes with experience. Uh, so I think it's that thing about to, to worry less, that 
the things that you that you're doing. I think my work mode was looking to step up a new skill or to step up a new level every few years, and that that approach kind of worked worked quite well. Um, so I think that that would be uh, not to not to not to it seems a strange thing to say not to worry about a lack of confidence sometimes it's the correct approach if you don't know very much about a space you're coming into mm. a lack of confidence is a very good thing um, because the counter would be overconfidence uh, and uh, in our business investment actually we think a lot about risk so in my previous job and um, we had offices in a tower block next to MI6 so my bike was locked up in a cage with a combination lock uh, in an area patrolled by armed guards because we're next to MI6. And although we were in a separate building, a separate compound, their cameras, uh, security cameras, will have most likely covered our, uh, you know, this, this yard where my bike was locked up. And I still locked it up with two locks because that's what you do. You kind of practice reducing risk all of the time. So a lack of confidence that you might have early on in your career or your life can sometimes be a very sensible response to the situation that you're in. Yeah, that's, no, that sounds great advice. Mm -hmm. And just stretch yourself and the, and the confidence will come later on. Is there a book, podcast or video that you'd recommend to aspiring leaders? When I first offered this job, I found up this friend of mine who happens to be a, a CEO coach. And, uh, and of course he did the right thing. He said, Daniel, why don't, we, why don't we just sit down and talk about this? I said, no, 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 send me some books, send me some books. So he kind of sent me this reading list and then uh, I, I saw him afterwards. Oh, I bought them all. He said, Daniel, I wasn't expecting you to buy them all. <laughs> just one or two of them. <laughs> but it was that, uh, that was, uh, I, I wouldn't, um, when uh, I have, uh, my, my partner and I have two children and my advice to new parents is um, listen to all advice, ignore all advice, because you have to find your own way. So there will be absolute gems in the advice that you get, but everyone is different and every child is different and you don't know what's going to work uh, for your circumstance um, until, you're, until you're in it. So there's something of there is a vast array of this advice out there. Please do listen to it and read it and look at it. But in the knowledge that what works for you and your organization and your situation, which will also be constantly changing, um, is, is a change. I would say that the things that I've most benefited for have been, you know, when I read those, the, the management books, there's something of Actually, it's what my Tai Chi teachers have taught me that really helps me. It's my, what I've learned from my chief execs in the past and managers in the past mm. has, really, has really taught me. And I think the books are great because somebody has carefully written it down and worked it out and thought it through. So they're all worth reading. Um, but I, I think it is that... Uh, I particularly liked, it was a commencement speech at Smith College, which was a, uh, a US women's college. And I happened to see this because um, one of my fellow Tai Chi um, teachers happens to be a marine biologist. 
and his daughter was graduating from Smith College and he actually saw this address in person and he sent this link and it's the most hysterical uh, commencement speech by this extraordinary woman who's a teacher and theatre director. Uh, I'm sorry I've forgotten her, her name at this moment, but she, um, she was talking about what she called classroom teaching and she said how it was a in this world of uh, the internet and the availability of the information, why, why would you turn up in a classroom? Why would you learn from somebody? Such an old, archaic thing to do. And she, she kind of described it as like a breath-to-breath, -breath, you know, in-person experience where you bring nothing into the room and you leave with nothing, but somehow this transmission of knowledge has happened. And I think that's what you get from your colleagues. Uh, I once pretended that a particular board of directors had divine wisdom. So I, I, I believed, I chose to believe that everything they said was extraordinary and insightful. And of course the amazing thing is that you do then hear extraordinary and insightful things. Not because they were saying anything extraordinary and insightful, but because you put yourself into the mode yeah. of opening yourself up to, uh, to insight. So I would say it's the people, learning from the people, looking at good managers. I just uh, looked at the, the early parts of your Compassionate Leadership book and, and I could see in there uh, the leaders who you, who, and managers who you've worked for, who you admired, and I, I, I really think it's that. And it echoes back to that thing that I did before starting the job, of just wandering around the people who were kind enough to give me a bit of their time, saying, what did you do? What's your... What are your top tips? What really works for you? Um, so the books are great, but I think that uh, learning from others. Um, Brilliant. That's, I think that's great advice, Daniel. Terrific. Um, and, and thank you for your generosity with your time this morning. It's, it's been a privilege uh, to interview you. It really has. Thanks for listening to this edition of the Compassionate Leadership Interview. You can order Compassionate Leadership, the book, at www.compassionate-leadership.co.uk or on Amazon. This show was recorded at Big Issue London and the music was brought to you by 96 Back on CPU Records. Mm -hmm.